0: We pray that you will open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Show us your truth. Show us the Savior. We pray in Jesus' wonderful name. And all God's people said, Amen. What comes to mind when you think of the word cloud? I suppose with many of us, we think of the Tropospheric clouds, I went for a definition, and it says in meteorology, a cloud is an aerosol consisting of a visible mass of minute liquid droplets, frozen crystals suspended in our troposphere, the atmospheric layer closest to the Earth's surface. I like the more scientific definition, the puffy white cotton balls in the sky. (laughs) But you get the idea. Uh, we've given names to these clouds, actually formulated from the Latin back in the 1800s, the stratus, the cirrus, uh, strato cumulus, and uh, nimbus clouds. I remember when my daughters were studying that in school years ago, they would talk about the cute little nimbus clouds. And uh, that was their understanding of it. Uh, but the, that's what we think of. Those clouds can be threatening, and those clouds affect the way we live because they put us in an environment sometimes that is pleasant or that can be dangerous. I think sometimes when you hear the word cloud, you think of the internet, the internet cloud, uh, which is uh, a bit of a mystery in some ways. It's the ability to remote uh, access remotely all the data. That is not stored on your hard drive in your computer. But the cloud is a mysterious group of gigantic servers somewhere planted in our solar system. But no one knows exactly where. Oh, someone knows exactly where. But when you try to ask about it, say, well, it's in the cloud. But what's in the cloud? And where's the cloud? And who's got control of the cloud? And all of that. So it can be threatening. I don't know about you, but I don't like getting all my information out there. But it doesn't make any difference what I like because it's already out there. Where is it? It's in the cloud. I want to take it back. You can't. But when you hear the word cloud, if you're studying the book of Hebrews, you're going to think of the great cloud, which is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 12. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And the cloud of witnesses is described in Hebrews chapter 11. So just some analytics from uh, the book of Hebrews. There's about 303 verses in the book of Hebrews. It, uh, you know, The verses were put together, I think, in the mid-1500s, at least in our English Bible, and Miles Coverdale was one of the first ones to incorporate the verses, not just in the margin on the side, but actually interspersed, connected with each particular verse. And there, there doesn't appear to be uh, a just way to divide those verses, if you've ever looked at them. In fact, tradition says that he was actually doing the verse setup when he was riding on a horse uh, going in, this was actually another individual riding on a horse uh, going into a country, which maybe makes a lot of sense for the discrepancy we see with the verses. Some are two words and some seem to be four sentences. But it, they help us navigate in the scriptures. Hebrews, in our English Bible, has 303 verses. The longest chapter is chapter 11 with 40 verses. And in chapter 11, there are 16 different individuals named and six groups of people named, all related to the triumph of faith. So in Hebrews chapter 1, or chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the ancients received or were commended, received a good report, commended for their faith. And by faith, we understand that the world, the universe, was framed by the word of God. And what we see didn't come from something previously existing, but God spoke it into existence. So nothing became something. And since no one was there, this has to be understood and recognized by faith. Now, with that foundation, a brief definition of faith, the commendation that comes with faith, and the fact that even faith is the basis for us understanding the creation in which we live, the author of Hebrews now wants to give some real-life testimonies, much like the three ladies did, testifying to their faith as they went to an island to share Christ with people. So Hebrews 11, verse 4 says, By faith, Abel. Here's the very first individual mentioned in this Heroes of Faith chapter. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. That's why today we can have lessons from the cloud as we look at the life of Abel and understand something about what made him so different. Obviously, by faith is repeated three times in this verse, which has to be the theme of this guy's life and the important basis or principle upon which we learn about life. Faith indeed is life, chapter 10 told us. The just shall live by faith. That's starting your journey with Christ and continuing your journey. It is all about faith. So when we mention Abel, that takes us back to the portion of scripture that Pastor Doug read a moment ago from the book of Genesis and in chapter 3 and 4. We read about Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? You can let your mind imagine what that might have been like, but there's no way that you can understand the concept of walking with the invisible God in a garden-like atmosphere. But the Bible tells us that our first parents rebelled and sinned. And when they sinned, Fellowship with God was broken, and paradise was lost. But we're also told in the scriptures that God intervened and pursued his lost creation. It wasn't Adam and Eve who went after God. Those who used to walk with God were now hiding from God, and God comes into the garden and says, where are you? Not because he didn't know but because they didn't realize where they were. Separated from the giver of life and under the curse and condemnation of death. So the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter three and verse 21 that God made garments, skins, for them to cover their nakedness. The nakedness was not just a physical, it was the exposure of a heart that had broken the law of God. And now the sentence of death was there. So God covered them with skins, garments taken from an animal. They were clothed. Which introduces for us the whole concept of offering and sacrifice and death leading to life. I don't know if this is the time when God said, okay, let me tell you about life as it goes on from here. The only way you can approach me now is with some type of offering. He must have told them about the kind of offering that would be acceptable. He must have told them about the place that they would bring the offering. And the Bible doesn't tell us where the place was, but it was into the presence of God, whether it was an altar or some type of presence. And they would bring the offering according to his word. And fellowship with man was restored. We come to chapter 4 and now we have Adam becoming the father for the very first time. And the first human being born into this world on this planet, his name was Cain. Which means brought forth. Brought forth of the Lord acquired God's gift. And remember there was a prophecy that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent? Remember that? And my guess is, when Eve gave birth to this boy... To this man-child, she was hoping in her heart that here's the fulfillment to that prophecy. The seed of the woman has now given birth to someone who will bruise the head of the serpent. But it wasn't long before they realized that Cain wasn't going to fulfill that prophecy. Because he had a different heart altogether. Then Eve gives birth to a second son and she gives him the name Abel the one that we read about in Hebrews 11. His name means breath. It's the same identical Hebrew word that is translated vanity. Now, I don't know if that's a commentary on the way she felt. The first guy didn't work out so well, so now I've got another one. I don't know. Or maybe it was a prophecy about his short life. Man is a mere breath, and he didn't live long, which... Is all relative because back in that day they lived hundreds of years. But his life was going to be cut short. In Cain we see that life is a gift from God and in Abel we see that life is a breath from God. And we're not guaranteed a long life. So we've got to learn how to approach God and come before him. So when we look at Genesis chapter 4 it says now Abel kept The flocks and Cain worked the soil. Abel was a shepherd and Cain a farmer. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. Fat portions, by the way, is a a rich way to describe. A great sacrifice. And the firstborn from the flock is the best. But then notice this. This is Genesis chapter 4, verse 4. The Lord looked with favor upon Abel in his offering, but did not look on favor to Cain. But on Cain's offering, there was no pleasure. It didn't please God. And so the Bible tells us that Cain was very angry And his face was downcast. And we have to ask the question, why? Why was one received and the other wasn't? Well, some point to the offering itself. One was a grain offering and the other was an animal sacrifice. And there may be some truth to that. But when you go later on into the scriptures in the book of Leviticus, you'll find that the offerings included acceptable offerings of grain. So I'm not sure that that was the whole issue. They brought it to the right place, wherever that place was. God had told them where to bring the offering and they brought the offering to God. But there was a problem. I think the problem is further described when you go down to Genesis chapter four, verse six. God said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? Verse seven, if you do, What is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. The rest of the verse says, It desires to have you, to master you, sin does, but you must resist it and rule over it. So the simple answer is Cain did not do what is right. It might have been the offering, but I think it's something far deeper. We learn that Cain's attitude was defiant and indeed selfish. Faith is not mentioned of Cain's offering at all. Cain is not mentioned in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. But he is mentioned in other places in the New Testament, like 1 John chapter 3. Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil. The evil precedes the murder. And one of the evil things that you and I do is to worship God in the wrong way. Or to worship God in the right way with a wrong heart attitude. Worshiping God in the wrong way is... Laying down our own rules. I'm going to make a little god out of a statue. And I'm going to bow down before it. And I'm going to burn incense to it. And I'm going to have prayers recited. So that this God of mine. Wherever I take him. Will give me blessing. And God said that's not the way you worship. He gave clear instructions. Sacrifice was part of it. But we can worship God in the right way but with the wrong heart attitude. We can sing the right songs. We can attend the right uh, body of Christ. We can read the book of God. We can do all of those good things, but if our heart is absent from the action, then the worship is, what did God call it? Evil, evil actions. Warren Worsby says that Cain wasn't rejected because of his offering. But his offering was rejected because of Cain. His heart wasn't right with God. Immediately he goes into anger, probably hostility against God, the God he cannot lash out against. But he's jealous and envious of the brother he can touch. And his anger turns violent and he kills his own brother. Now, Eve, what do you think about the seed of the woman? Doesn't look like the human race is looking very good at this point in time. And that's what happens with a lot of us. You know, anger is, uh, really turns into murder. It doesn't always turn into the act of murder, but it's the moral equivalent, Jesus said, in Matthew chapter five. If you hate your brother... You're a murderer. You've heard it said, don't kill, Ten Commandments, don't murder. But I say, if you hate in your heart, it's the same category. It's amazing to me how violent and angry our society has become. And it seems to just grow like a snowball going downhill in mass In volume, in speed, people are angry. You see it on the road, don't you? We call it road rage. I don't don't know the exact timing of these statistics. I think it's less than a decade that 300 people have been killed intentionally on the road because of rage. I think it seems to me it's more than that. But in addition to that, another 30 murders happened after they got off the road where an angry driver would pursue someone and take their life. Over 12,000 people in that period of time injured because of road rage. Maybe you've been the victim of road rage. Maybe you're the one that drives angry. But the point is, when we get angry, usually it's anger aimed at God and we can't touch him. So we're we're upset with his providence. We're upset with his creation. we're, We're upset with other people. And so we lash out against them. And that's exactly what Cain was doing. Jude 11 talks about the way of Cain. What is the way of Cain? It's a selfish, defiant way of unbelief that plays fast and loose with the commands of God and outwardly appears to be offering a sacrifice when inwardly there's no belief that God is. There is no conviction that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's the way of Cain and that's the way of the world. But it's not the way of Christ and those who named the name of Christ. You think about it, Cain, Cain became a vagabond. He had no home. Cain became a fugitive. He was running away from home and justice. And he became a stranger because no place could he call home. Abandoned by God and people. And yet the mark of Cain We don't have time to get into this, but it's fascinating. The mark on Cain is not a mark of judgment. It is actually a mark of mercy. Someone said that God put on Cain this mark, and it wasn't a stigma. It was a sign of safe passage through the world. Derek Kidner, the great commentator uh, in, in the book of, of Genesis, says that God becomes Cain's protectorate. Now that, my friend, is what you call mercy. I'm sure you're sitting in your seat, much like I was in my study reading this and saying, boy, we got to, you know, Cain, let's just get rid of this guy. He's bad news. And God says, let me redeem him. Let me reach out in mercy to him. And that is amazing. But Abel, whatever he did, it was righteous. His offering, verse 4 of Hebrews 11, was better. By faith, Cain brought to God a better offering. Notice that. Why was it better? It was by faith. It could have been the sacrifice, but it was was the way it was offered. The hard attitude. By faith. By faith. By faith. Again, I'm often reminded of my English teacher who if I brought an essay to her where I repeated something three times in one sentence, I would get all kinds of red marks on it. And often it was appropriate because I would repeat things because I didn't have enough content and the requirement was three pages. I had to write three pages with a half a page of content. So you just learn like a talk radio show host to say the same thing 10 different ways because you've got to fill three hours. (laughs) Abel offers a better superior sacrifice because it is by faith. It must have been according to the instructions that God gave, not just the place, but the way to bring it and maybe even the offering itself. And he, by faith, followed God. He submitted to the truth of God, and that's why it was superior. His heart attitude was right, and God spoke. That's the second thing. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke. That would be a cool scene to see, wouldn't it? Here he is bringing his offering. And a voice comes from heaven. I I imagine it kind of like Jesus at his baptism when the Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Or at the transfiguration when a voice is echoing out of the heavens, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God spoke and said, this is Abel, a man who has faith in me. In his offering, I am well pleased. And he was commended. We noticed that last week, verse two, the ancients were commended for their faith. All the people of Hebrews chapter 11 are commended for their faith. At the very end of the chapter, it comes up again. These people were commended for their faith. We give commendations to people, people who act courageously and bravely, don't we? I mean, maybe a person who is in law enforcement or someone who fights fires and they go into a tough situation. And I know that there are corrupt people in those groups, but by and large, you've got many wonderful people giving their life so that we might be, free, might be safe, and they are to be commended. Commended. Commendations for bravery. How many Christians get commendations for faith? Let me pin a medal on you for your faith. We don't recognize faith like God does. His commendation is his pleasure. And what is his pleasure? Faith. Verse six, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And what's the heart of faith? God, I understand who He is. He's the Creator. God is. He's real. And God is good. He's a rewarder. And the two go hand in hand. Because He is, I'm convinced He will. And therefore, I do. That's the whole chapter, the triumphs of faith, of people who just believe that God is and just believe that God is trustworthy and just believe that his word is true like Abel and I'm going to bring what he wants me to bring and when you do it, God is pleased. Isn't that wonderful? He's spoken of a being righteous multiple times. Genesis 4-7, we read it a moment ago. He did what was right. Matthew 23, he's called righteous, the righteous blood or the blood of righteous Abel. Here in our text, commended as righteous, 1 John 3, we read a moment ago, righteous. He is righteous because he simply did what God told him to do. He doesn't gain acceptance before God based on his doing. His acceptance before God is based on what God has done. And he puts faith, he trusts what God has done. And it's in the mercy of grace of God that he's brought into the family of faith, but now he lives. This is the principle of life. He lives by faith, and he does righteous deeds. Which leads us to the third thing in this verse. Not only is he offering a better sacrifice, and not only is he commended divinely by God, but thirdly, he has a lasting influence. For the scripture says, he being dead, yet speaketh. That's the old authorized translation. Even though he's dead and gone, his life still has an impact. I've done quite a few funerals in my life and I'm always amazed, not with every funeral, but often amazed, especially with the godly, of their amazing impact. And sometimes the family will stand up and friends will stand up and people are weeping because a good life is gone, but that life has left an impression on the lives of others of what it is to love God and follow God. And I often say, oh, I wish I would have known them better. Well, don't you want to leave a a positive legacy? Faith. Loving God with all of your heart and simply following him. Now the scriptures also tell us that the blood of Abel demands justice. Places like Luke 11. The blood of the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation, Jesus said. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. It's interesting that That Abel is somehow grouped in with the holy prophets. At least in this, this sense. Their blood was offended. Their lives were cut short. And people will give answer. People will be accountable and must give an answer for taking innocent life. The blood's not gone. It's gone into the ground and will come up in the day of judgment to plead as a witness against those who took the life. And shed the blood of those made in the image of God. But when you come to chapter 12 in Hebrews and verse 24, you read this Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's better blood. What a striking contrast. The blood of Abel cries out for justice. The blood of Jesus cries out for mercy. Both are offended blood because their lives were taken, not because of things that they had done. Abel lost his life because his brother murdered him. Jesus gave up his life. Because his life is not just a, his blood is not just offended blood, it is atoning blood. And he shed it. To redeem people. Just like the animals that sacrifice their lives for the garments that God made for Adam and Eve. So Jesus sacrifices his life and sheds his blood so that we can be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It's a better blood because it's atoning blood. So what are the lessons from the cloud? Or what is the lesson from this one guy in the cloud? I think it's simple that faith at its core believes that God is. There's a conviction, there is evidence, there is persuasion in the soul which leads us to act, to cast everything, our future, and are present upon this thing called faith because we believe God's word to be trustworthy. We believe that he is, and we believe that he is good, and we diligently seek him because he said, I will reward those who do. You say, I want to know what the reward is first before I do something. (laughs) Whatever kind of reward God gives is good. Amazing. Some of the blessings of heaven... Obviously. But God rewards those who diligently seek him. And the reward is not necessarily in this life because when you go through the chapter, you'll find a lot of people who were triumphant because of faith and they built kingdoms and they, they uh, escaped the sword and they shut the mouths of lions and all these things they did and then the scripture just says, and others. were sawn in two. And others, you see, there's a whole group of people who don't get rewarded in this life. Twice in Hebrews 11, it says they never saw the promise fulfill, But that was okay. Because God didn't promise them that they would see all of the promise. But what he has promised them will come true. So faith, we walk by faith not by sight. In heaven, we walk by sight and not by... We don't need faith in heaven because you don't have faith in that which you see. It'll all be revealed. There is much as it can be revealed to finite creatures glorified who are not gods. Oh, but we'll know as we are known. And there's so much that will make sense And we don't have to walk by faith because there he is. (laughs) There he is. On the throne. I can't conceive. Except the reward is going to be amazing. So Moses, believing in the invisible God, said no to the treasures of Egypt because God had promised something better. We've got to stop Start living like that. Or we've got to develop greater convictions so our lives are commended for simple faith. What do we learn from Abel? It's simply this. That God honors faith. And faith honors God. The person who loses his money loses much. The person who loses a friend loses more. The person who loses faith, you've lost everything. Nothing of value remains. The key in Hebrews chapter 11 is that faith is so real and so part of who we are that we act it out that we live, that we do. The people who know God shall be strong and do great exploits, Daniel 11.32. The people who know that God is and know that he rewards, those are people who are to be commended for their faith. Years ago in the 1800s, there was a man who was an inventor and he invented a machine that was named after him. His name was George Ferris and he invented the Ferris wheel. So after the construction of this thing, he decided that there would be this inaugural ride and he invited a reporter to come and he also invited his wife to go with him. It happened to be a very windy July day. When they would ride for the first time on a Ferris wheel. Now, frankly, I don't like Ferris wheels. I don't know about you, but I'm not crazy about them. The small kiddie ones aren't too bad. <laughs> but you know, the eye in London. Oh. And imagine the wind blowing so that this structure must have been creaking at least and complaining. But they got in. That took faith. What kind of faith? Well, the faith of George Ferris was in the science behind his invention. The faith of the reporter and Mrs. Ferris was placed in the inventor. The creator. And they rode one revolution around and then they got off. And I'm sure some people breathed a sigh of relief. And the reporter wrote up a great story. They had faith and they acted upon their faith and afterward they had what you might call experiential faith. Faith tested and faith true. If you want to be blessed, get close to people who have walked faith for a while, the journey, and have tested God's promises and found them to be true. Let that encourage your faith. You say, well, who am I going to talk to? Well, first of all, talk to about 16 people in the book of Hebrews 11. And then think of the groups of people, the men and the women who ventured all because God is. And God is a rewarder of all who diligently seek Him. Let's pray. Lord, this thing called faith can be tricky for us human beings. We say we have it, but then we pray, I believe, help my unbelief. Today we're strong, but by the afternoon we're weak. We ebb and flow like the waves of the sea. Yet you've told us if that's the way our prayer life is, we can't expect to receive answers but we must be convinced that you are and that you are good. You're the rewarder. And so in the reality of your existence and the understanding of your reward, we cast everything upon you. And may we not live in the way of Cain, but in the way of Abel, who heard from God, well done, good, and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.